Hello and welcome to the PC Speaking Podcast. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. We're starting a new series today called Do the Right Thing, Why Morality Matters. And we are talking about why morality matters. As we go through this, uh, we're working on avenues to make this happen. But if you have any questions as we talk about morals, especially looking for moral questions, um, the different platforms people use to listen to this podcast often provide a way to comment. Uh, if you'd like to do so, leave a comment and I'll see if I can get to it. And if you have a question that you would like me to answer, I'll try to do that for you. And we're going to be sharing some ways to do that through social media and such. And I'll share those as we go through this. Maybe I'll have a little better of idea of how all that's going to work next week. But for now, if you have a question, post it in the comments wherever you might be listening to this. You know, occasionally I listen to a podcast, read something, or watch a video that I know I will absolutely disagree with. I, lo- I listen to all kinds of audio. I watch a lot of YouTube. Um, but sometimes, occasionally, I'll specifically seek something out that I know I'm absolutely going to disagree with. I know that up front. Um, it's not hard for me to find something like that because I have a very disagreeable personality. I took a personality test that said when it comes to the trait of being disagreeable, I am in the 99th percentile. So I'm a very disagreeable person, but part of my own exercise in self-improvement is listening to things I disagree with, helping me to better maybe temper my disagreement or tendency for it anyway. I think about what would I say to this person if I were trying to work through this problem, whatever it might be, and share Jesus with them, which is our job as Christians. We help people who are suffering. We share the message of Jesus. And I listened to an entire podcast, which was difficult to do, but that's part of the deal. Something I had disagreed with. I listened to the whole thing. It was, it was, uh, an exercise in endurance for me, I have to admit that. But I thought about how would I speak to this person if I were given the opportunity to do so? It doesn't matter what side of an issue someone is on. Trying to reason with someone who has completely sold out to an ideology, whether it's a religious one or otherwise, will most likely be fruitless. And there are Christians like that too. They've created their own ideology that has become their security blanket. And to challenge that only results in very fierce resistance. And there's a lot of that in the world. As you look around, as you listen to people speak, if you read news articles, comments on those articles, especially, people are very angry and very divided. One of the things I gathered from the podcast I listened to that I disagreed with was how the people in the podcast had been treated very poorly by Christians. And I have no reason to not believe the things they were saying. It wasn't uh, a stories that were being made up. It was, it was pretty disappointing to hear as I've listened to and read about what people think about church and Christians. There's a lot of negativity in the world. That's not unusual. Some of it is valid. It's, it's always been like that for Christians. Unfortunately, it's usually the negative things that make news and grab attention. You know, there's all kinds of churches doing great things, all kinds of Christians working hard to do good things, but it's the negative stuff that 
makes the news and grabs attention, charlatans and moral misconduct, misconduct, sorry, things like that. One of the things that people often claim as a reason for avoiding church or holding a negative view of church is that they have been hurt in some way by a church. In some cases, that's absolutely true. And there's nothing wrong with admitting and conceding that there are people claiming to be Christians who have done a lot of damage. And there is certainly a camp of people claiming to be Christians who think it's the mission of a church to wage a cultural war. Last week, I said one of the biggest dangers for current day Christianity is wealth. One of the biggest blunders of current day Christianity is not understanding the mission of a church, the mission of Christians. Our church constitution says a church is a local congregation of immersed believers joined together to carry out the commission given by Jesus Christ, worship, service, and fellowship. And that commission, I mean, obviously we meet together for worship, service, fellowship. It's that commission part that is the mission that Jesus has given us. And this is what it says. You can find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. And it says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. If you hope to take part in that mission, and you want to see people come to know Jesus, and you genuinely want to see culture changed, you need to love people, be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, and be able to have reasonable conversations with people without trying to force an ideology on them. And that often means being able to sit and listen to someone that you disagree with without having to retaliate. Judging by what I hear, read, See, there are a whole boatload of biblically illiterate Christians in the world. Most Christians would have a hard time giving an answer as to why they believe what they do or why it would make any difference to live a life that reflects biblical truth or even what that would mean to do that. Maybe that's because when they come across a biblical passage or um, a command that they don't understand— they say, well, I'm just going to do what seems right to me. That results in living together outside of marriage, sex outside of marriage, divorce, all these different things that Christians struggle with. And statistically, there's no difference between Christians and the secular world when it comes to those things. I was speaking to a pastor who disagreed with me on a hot button issue. This was a few years back now. But anyway... This person said, I can't believe people still think that way in this day and age. That was the, uh, I guess you could say the argument against my view, which I consider biblical. But for someone claiming to be a pastor to allow pop culture to trump biblical instruction is disturbing. The reality is, though, that a lot of Christians do think that way. It's something that needs to be addressed and talked about. So we're beginning a series today called Do the Right Thing, Why Morality Matters. And this is just an introduction to that. And it's my hope that we will not only better understand what the right thing is, but also why it's the right thing. And most importantly, at the same time, immerse ourselves in a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Western culture is founded on 
biblical principles, biblical values. Many people may not know this, but biblical values are at the very foundation of Western culture. Even the most vocal anti-Christian atheist has been shaped by biblical morality because that's what has shaped our culture. The most rabid social justice warrior draws the very concept of justice from biblical values. Many people think we, we naturally know the right thing to do that it's inherent to us somehow. But the fact is, is that we don't know the right thing to do. It's not inherent to us. We learn how to do the right thing from our culture, a culture that finds its foundation in biblical values. And of course, if you're a Christian and you regularly study scripture, you're going to have more of that to draw on. But for instance, we think murder is wrong, not because it's inherent to who we are, but because culture has taught us that. What's happening today is we're gradually drifting away from that foundation. It's just kind of slowly drifting apart. We don't share a common set of values. With that, and when that happens, people are left to create their own set of moral values. Those values are based on how they feel because there isn't a common shared cultural set of values. People think, well, I'm just going to do the right thing, and the right thing is whatever I feel is the right thing. The problem is feelings are not a great guide, not even a good one, for determining what that is. Not only are feelings a poor guide for determining what the right thing is, when you discuss a lot of different moral ideas and issues, you find that everyone feels differently about these things. So it's impossible for people to have a shared set of values if doing the right thing is based on feelings and everyone feels differently. We need something more than how we feel to determine what is moral, what's right, what's wrong. Morals are very important. They shouldn't be taken lightly. Morals solve problems and set boundaries that keep us from wandering off into dangerous places. Morals require some discipline. The right thing to do is usually not the easiest thing to do. It's not the most fun thing to do, at least not in the short term, but it pays off in the long term. One of the interesting things I find in listening to people who I completely, totally, and utterly disagree with is that they consistently see themselves as doing the right thing. They see themselves as moral heroes, even martyrs in some cases. And just because I disagree with them doesn't mean that I hate them. It doesn't even mean I dislike them. I've had plenty of people that, Uh, we would see different ways on different things that I've got along quite well with. But I find it to be consistent that people see themselves as doing the right thing. They see themselves as moral heroes, even martyrs in some cases, people who take action in different areas of that, that they see to be moral. They usually believe they're very moral and they usually believe they are doing the right thing. Therein lies the issue. Everyone thinks they're moral, but not everyone agrees on what that means. So we're faced with a bit of a problem there. The reason everyone doesn't agree on what it means to be moral is because most people rely on what they feel, how they feel, to determine what's the right thing. Even many Christian people who would claim otherwise do that. We all do that. We all have areas in our lives where we allow our feelings, how we feel, to dictate what we think is right or wrong. We need something beyond our own feelings and imaginations to guide us in our morality. If you believe the Bible, 
you would at least believe that biblical boundaries and principles are transcendent of time and intellect and most assuredly feelings. Throughout this series, we're going to be talking about morals. Some of them will be quite controversial. You'll probably find some of them offensive. Some of them are going to offend me. The way I plan to talk about them is why they matter in a practical way, because I think many Christians would struggle to answer why some things matter. Are there practical and pragmatic reasons, for instance, to hold marriage as sacred? Or is that just an old tradition that really doesn't matter anymore? It's not necessary. The way many people, including some Christians, would say it's just an old tradition that doesn't matter anymore. How about complementarianism? That's a that's a, a hot button among Christians. That's Actually, I think that's one of the biggest ones. It's a biblical value that says men and women are different and they play different roles in the home and in church leadership. Is that a legitimate belief? Is that a legitimate way of navigating the world? Or is that just an old misogynistic belief that's outdated? Or are there real and practical reasons for that? What does that even mean? There's another side of this too. It gives us an opportunity for some self-examination. What are some things that actually have been determined by culture and feelings that aren't biblical that maybe we've kind of treated as though they are? Maybe some things have been added to scripture that just aren't there. And that's another thing. We all struggle with that sometimes. We're going to start by going back to the very beginning of biblical morality, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The very first time people were presented with the opportunity to do the right thing. Someone may be listening who doesn't put stock in the Bible. If you, if that's you, if that happens to be you, and for some reason you are listening to this, I'm grateful that you are. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say my thing. Uh, maybe that there'll be a chance someday for me to hear what you have to say. As we go through this, I'm going to ask you to give this a chance. Listen to the principles that we talk about, the application we make, and see if it makes sense to you. If it does, maybe it's worth considering the God who put these things in place in the first place, and also what he has to say about you and me. I know what most of I know that most of what might be considered preaching about biblical morality, many would see as Bible bashing. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I suppose that's fair enough. I get that. I understand that. But I think, I hope you'll find this to be a little different than that. We're going to dig a little deeper than just do this, don't do that. You're bad because you do that kind of thinking. We're going to explore morality and practical reasons for it. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. This is what it says. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This is the beginning of God giving humans a standard to live by, giving people boundaries, setting up a moral structure for our benefit the first opportunity to do the right thing or not. As you read on later in the Bible, you read through the book of Leviticus, and there are 613 Levitical laws, or at least that's what I've read. I've never actually taken the time to sit down and count them for myself, but I, you know, 613 of them. 613 Levitical laws. 
often people, they'll see commands from the Old Testament and they'll say, why don't we apply those today? Why do we apply some and not others? You know, why do we not eat, or why do we eat shellfish and mixed fabrics, all the different things that come from the Old Testament? That's a complicated topic, working out how some of those things do and don't apply to us today. And it can be done. And we'll likely touch on some of that as we go through this. But at this point, in Genesis chapter 2, humans had one rule. That was it. One rule. That's all there was. Can you imagine living with just one rule? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That seems like it'd be easy enough. But notice this. God doesn't just stop with don't do that. He goes on to give a reason why. He says, because if you do, you will die. We'll get back to that in a minute, but this is not the only boundary God has put in place, even this early in Scripture. Eden is a walled garden. Eden has boundaries. It was paradise, but it was paradise with boundaries. Safety, prosperity, good things are protected by boundaries. They happen inside of boundaries. When you read further in Scripture and look at when God divided the land amongst the tribes of Israel— there are very clear boundaries between each tribe. Even though they're all the nation of Israel, each tribe has very clear boundaries. When you read about the temple in the Old Testament, everything was very clearly defined, even down to the smallest detail. There was a court of the Gentiles where anyone could go, all the way through to the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the temple where only the high priest could go once a year. There were clear boundaries between these different areas. When you read about the city of heaven, the new Jerusalem, it's a walled city. Why would heaven need a walled city? I don't know. But boundaries differentiate between what's inside of the boundary and what's outside of the boundary. And from the very beginning, God has given humans boundaries. He's given us boundaries. Biblical morality sets those boundaries. Morals define what it actually means to do the right thing. Morals solve problems before they start. Morals provide stability, whereas a lack of morals equates to uncertainty. It equates to instability. Morals provide stability, at least when they are shared and understood by the entire community. I think <clears throat> I think everyone could agree that moral boundaries are an absolute necessity, no matter what your belief system is, what you might consider moral, immoral. I think we could all agree that moral boundaries are an absolute necessity. We'll all disagree on what those are, but everyone would agree they are important. Uh, one of our big problems today, though, is, is trying to sort out and struggle through what those boundaries are. God sets boundaries, and you learn as you read through Scripture that God says if you do what He says and stay within those boundaries, things are going to go well for you. They're not going to be perfect. You'll still face struggles and pain and difficulties, but things will be better than if you don't. Biblical morals are the blueprint for navigating life in a broken world. God is a God of boundaries. And within those boundaries exists the most possible peace and well-being. In the garden, God said to Adam, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, 
you will surely die. A little bit about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's really nothing that special about that tree. It's not like it's a magical tree. There's nothing like that. We read later that the fruit was nice to look at. But the real issue is not so much with the tree. It's with what people decide to do with what God says and the consequences that inevitably follow, either the good ones or the bad ones. What does it mean to do the right thing and what happens if you don't? Adam and Eve have a paradise full of good things to eat. God gave them one rule, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose to break that one rule. When they did, exactly what God said would happen did. They gained the knowledge of good and evil. And they were ashamed. Before this, they didn't know what it was to not do the right thing. But now they understand what it is to practice evil, and now they have to suffer the consequence of that evil, which is death. That is the ultimate consequence of not doing what God says to do. Humans were not created to die. Their choice to break God's one rule led to that, to death. And we don't want to be too hard on Adam and Eve about this. Um, We think, oh, it'd be so easy just not to eat that fruit. But someone would have done this eventually, possibly you or me. And that's, that's kind of the point, is that we are all capable of this. Death enters when mankind steps over God's boundaries. There were other consequences as well, not just death, but life became far more difficult than it was before. And now life ends in death. It was some time before Adam actually died. He lived a long time, but he still eventually died and lived a life that was far more difficult than God intended it to be. It was far more difficult than if Adam had lived in obedience to God. Even if someone doesn't believe the creation story, you can still see the principle of what happens when we cross over moral boundaries. <clears throat> Living outside of transcendent moral boundaries only leads to difficulty in death. Crossing God's boundaries means death. We can take a look at the morality of the marriage covenant as an example of that. The family is the foundation of society. And the marriage covenant is the foundation of family. And what the marriage covenant is, is it's a covenant between a man, a woman, and God, that they're always going to remain faithful to each other no matter what, and nothing's going to break that covenant. And if we don't hold that covenant as sacred and to be respected and honored by all people, what happens then? Well, divorce happens. Sex outside of marriage becomes acceptable. The death of marriage happens, which leads to the death of family structure. We all know a broken family. Everybody knows that. And the struggles they face, you may be part of a broken family and and know this better than anyone, but we all know a broken family and the struggles they face and how much pain and destruction comes with a broken marriage and a broken family. Most likely, that is the result of disregard for the marriage covenant. The death of healthy sexuality follows, the death of the foundation of society, and ultimately, death of a prosperous and healthy culture. Someone might say, well, you're taking that kind of far, are you? Well, um, am I though? Am I though? I mean, reason it out for yourself. Think it through. Adam's death after he crossed over God's boundaries was slow. It was gradual, just like the death 
of the marriage covenant and the things that come with it. Back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's an interesting question that people sometimes ask. Why did God put that tree there in the first place? Why not just leave it out? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that be better to just not put the tree there at all? Thomas Aquinas said, Man has free choice, or otherwise counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. Without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there would be no choice. And where there is no choice, there is no freedom. God created you as a free moral agent. Think about that. He gave you the ability and the freedom to choose whether or not you will live within his boundaries. God didn't even set a watch of some sort on that tree. He didn't guard it. He just told Adam, don't eat from it. Ultimately, he's given you freedom to choose life or death. He put the responsibility to follow that command on Adam and Eve. That's a big responsibility. That's not something to be taken lightly. When we break outside of God's boundaries, cross over them, which we're able to do, we're free to do when we do that, when we open rebel against them, however you say it, however you do it, that's what the Bible calls sin and transgressions. That's what brought death into the world. That's what caused Adam and Eve to be removed from the garden and made life difficult for them. And we have been living with this, the, the consequences of that ever since. We're all descendants of Adam. We all possess the same nature that leads us to sin we sin against God, transgress his boundaries, life is difficult, and nobody is getting out of here alive, every person ever. When it comes to morals and boundaries and sin and transgressions, many people come to the conclusion that we must do what's right and good to work towards getting back to where we were and getting back to having the relationship with God that Adam and Eve did before they learned what it was to be evil. That's how most religion works. It's work hard to gain something good. You know, to, to, to get that place back that we lost in the garden. The problem is, is we can't go back there. We can't unknow that. We can't unbreak that rule. We can't uneat that fruit. What's done is done. We can't recreate what used to be. That's impossible. A lot of people understand Christian belief as a set of morals where if you do them, good things will happen, maybe you get to heaven, whatever. A set of morals that if we do the right thing will lead us back to being okay with God. Unfortunately, a lot of moralistic preaching leads people to believe that. But at the same time, moralistic preaching and teaching is necessary. We need it so that we can understand where and why God has placed boundaries. We need those morals so we know how to navigate life in a fallen and broken world. That's why whenever we talk about morality, we must absolutely thoroughly and completely couch that morality in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the future that is possible with him. If we don't do that, it becomes legalism. And what that does is that leaves people stranded outside the garden in sin without hope. You see, for a, a Christian, 
thinking legalism is gaining God's favor through our own actions and efforts, gaining access to God's love, gaining access to heaven through our own moral practice. Maybe I'm better than the next Christian, so God loves me more, whatever it is. Now, a secular person or a non-religious person practice something, practices something very similar in believing that if we do the right thing, we'll eventually reach the place we want to be. Maybe that that good place is an idealistic view of society. Maybe that's a utopian view of culture. And the belief is that that will be achieved through moral practice. I call that the doctrine of secular heaven. But how long have humans been trying to create that perfect society? And since the beginning, millennia, and that's really just that desire for every person to return to what we had in the garden with God. Do you think the human race will ever achieve that, that utopian society? I don't think so. I, matter of fact, I know so. So we have morals that are good and right, but we also have the problem of our failure to live up to our own moral standard, let alone God's moral standard. In the garden, when Adam and Eve broke the one rule God had given them and sin entered the world, the beautiful thing is, is that God did not abandon us or leave us outside of the walled garden without hope. He promised us a Savior. That Savior is His Son, Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin. And as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He gave us a lot of great moral teachings. Great teacher, great moral teaching that helps us live with the the most possibility for peace and well-being in a broken world. That's what biblical morals are for. They help us navigate a sinful world. And all that teaching is great and good. But morality, even if we're able to achieve it to, well, we can all achieve it to some degree. We all fall short in some degree. But morality still doesn't solve the, the ultimate problem of death. The good news, which is what the word gospel means, is that the solution for death is not found in a moral system. It's found in a person, the person of Jesus. Jesus provided a way, the only way, to be made right with God again. Jesus lived a perfect life without sin or transgression. He was arrested, put on trial, ultimately executed in the most terrible means possible, crucifixion on the cross as an innocent man. The most innocent man possible, suffering, is the worst criminal possible. Through his shed blood, he opened the way for us to be reconciled with God and spend future eternity with him as he originally intended for us. We can't go back, but Jesus has provided a way forward. He offers that to each of us as a free gift that you either accept or reject. To accept it is to receive eternal life with God in heaven. To reject it is to receive death. But it's more than just physical death. It's not like you just die and everything disappears, nothing happens, and you're over. It's not like that. You, when, when God created man in the garden, he breathed life into him. And when he did that, it was eternal life. So this is more than just physical stop, death, nothing else happens. This is eternal condemnation. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it says the consequence of sin is death. God offers us the opportunity to know Jesus is our Savior in heaven or 
eternal condemnation in hell. And he is righteous. He is just. He is correct either way. And it gives you the opportunity to choose Jesus as your Savior. And I hope that you have. So as we talk about morality going forward through this series, let's saturate it in the gospel. Let's always remember morality is the way we navigate through the world. Jesus is the way we're reconciled with God. Let's don't ever forget that. Well, again, I'm grateful that you've taken the time to tune in, and I hope you found something useful at this. If if you have and you think it might be useful for someone else, please share it with someone. It, it helps get this podcast out. I know personally I'd like to share it with as many people as possible, so if you can help me out with that, that would be awesome. And I will look forward to talking to you again next week. Until then, I'm praying for you, and I hope that you are blessed. Talk to you again soon.